In the worlds of Doctor Who for April 11th, meet the bloggers from Head Over Feels, who are demolishing any possible remaining notion that there's only one kind of Doctor Who fan. Plus, more big news from the BBC about a returning villain times two. All this in our first normal-length episode of This Week in Time Travel. Hey everyone, this is Alyssa, and Chip's joining us today. Good morning, everyone, or evening, or whatever time in this time-space continuum it is for you. We've got a lot of news to discuss this week. It was certainly an excellent week for Doctor Who fans. First and foremost, Gallifrey One tickets went on sale on Saturday. Uh, I got mine. Chip, you got yours, right? I got mine. You got yours. Everybody's happy. Uh, Actually, everybody's happy. Let's uh, talk about this for a second. Um, Gallifrey One, as we said a couple of times last week, is uh, the Globe's greatest Doctor Who fan convention, especially as far as being run by fans. It's a volunteer uh, kind of thing. And in recent years, that con has sold out faster than anything. And it didn't quite happen this time. And that's actually a really good thing for the convention. Yeah, it was a lot less stressful than it has been in previous years. Uh, They moved over their ticket sales to Eventbrite. Eventbrite's given us all the capacity you could possibly need. So right when tickets went on sale, everyone hit the refresh button. And the website did not go down. We all got our tickets. Um, As of Sunday afternoon, there were less than 40 tickets remaining. So my guess is we'll be sold out by Sunday evening. Uh, It's definitely been a little slower this year. Um, I think one of the contributing factors is that there were a lot of conventions that were selling tickets this weekend, including San Diego Comic Con. So everyone was very up in the air and going back and forth between different ticket websites and budgeting their money for the weekend. Um, So that probably had an impact as well as the fact Doctor Who hasn't really been on uh, in a little while. So uh, I think for those of us who come next year after we've had a full year of Doctor Who and a regeneration, it's going to be an amazing experience. Uh, so for all of us returning guests, should be quite some fun. Yep. And if you missed your chance to get a ticket, uh, Gallifrey One allows uh, ticket holders to transfer their tickets if uh, circumstances change. So don't lose hope completely. And if you do want to come and you find out last minute that maybe the stars are aligning, definitely go check out. Uh, they have uh, Last year they had a special Facebook page where you could offer up your tickets or advertise that you were looking for tickets. I've gotten some relatively late, so definitely don't lose hope. Keep looking. There are other ways to get to Gallifrey One. So that was the big news as far as Doctor Who fandom was concerned. As far as Doctor Who itself was concerned, they announced, they were forced to announce this by The Sun. uh, darn Darn that tabloid to heck. But they were forced to announce something that I've kind of been begging for for a couple of years now. And I can't wait. John Sims coming back. Yeah. And he's going to be toe to toe with Michelle Gomez. It is going to be the first televised uh, meeting. I know that multiple masters have met before in Big Finish and other places, but two masters on television. I'm giddy. I am giddy. This has the potential to be a really fascinating story. I've certainly got a couple of plot ideas bubbling in my head about where potentially in John Sims' timeline uh, we're pulling him out to meet Missy and the Doctor. In terms of the whole spoiler aspect of it, you know, that's, that's one that I'm really conflicted on because definitely the sun leaked that news, um, but the BBC certainly wasn't helping with that. This was one that I was genuinely surprised 
would have leaked because there were no set pictures of John Sim. Like usually when news like that is forced to leak, it's because they have to do some sort of filming that makes it very obvious that an actor or a villain or a monster is joining. I didn't see any of that. And I follow the set recon tag. Uh, Yeah, I I expose myself to spoilers, but I need the happy thing. What it sounds like to me is that based off what we were seeing on Twitter during the premiere showing of the first episode was that in the next week trailer, there was some sort of countdown. And after that countdown, there was going to be a major spoiler. So people who were there in the audience and decided to keep their eyes open to see the spoiler saw something. And then The Sun later reported Johnson was back. It sounds to me like the BBC themselves set themselves up for this news to come out early. And I don't know how I feel about that. That feels a little strange to me that they would give up away a surprise like that so easily. Yeah, I don't know either. But in the long run, I actually think that this is good for the show. Maybe if it had been timed a little later in the season, sure. But Doctor Who needs a little bit of a promotional push. It needs a little bit of help, I think, because it's been off the air for so long. At least as far as hardcore fans of the current series are concerned, the fact that John Sim, who I never really believed would want to come back to the show, I thought he would be almost Eccleston-like in his, yeah, that was fun, I did that, and let's moving on. But uh, no, I'm pleasantly surprised that he's on and the energy and excitement around his return and more importantly him being face to face with his successor yeah i mean it's going to be great they're so different and they're they're both such such incredible actors yeah seeing them go up against each other like seeing michelle gomez and john sim face to face playing off with each other whether their masters are both just different enough but similar enough that's that's going to be some amazing chemistry right there i can't wait to see that and fandom is buzzing about that and i think that that's what bbc wants that's really what they want so the timing may have not been expertly thought out but Ultimately, I think getting this news out there is good for the show. The other news this week is that we got a list of writers and most of the episode titles. Uh, We've had a few of them leak out bit by bit, but we finally got some of the last few out this week. Uh, First episode, The Pilot by Stephen Moffat. Second episode, Smile by Frank Cotterell Boyce. Third episode, which I'm particularly excited about, Thin Ice by Sarah Dollard. That's the doctor in the amazing Regency suit. I'm really, really excited. Fourth episode, Knock Knock by Mike Bartlett. Fifth episode, Oxygen, Jamie Matheson. Sixth episode, Extremis by Stephen Moffat. Seventh episode, The Pyramid at the End of the World, Peter Harness. Eighth episode, The Lie of the Land, Toby Whithouse. Ninth episode, The Empress of Mars, Mark Gatiss. And tenth episode, another one I'm very excited about, The Eaters of Light by Rona Monroe, who you may know as the writer of the last episode of the classic series, Survival. I'm really excited to see what she does with modern Doctor Who. And then it closes out with a two-parter by Stephen Moffat that has not been titled yet, so it's being called TBA, and I think that Doctor Who really should have a good trolling title one of these days, and one of these episodes should actually be titled TBA. You you keep going with that, Chip. Just, just go with it. I'm sensing a little bit of contempt for my co-host here, but I'm strong. I am resolute. This is, this, these, this is a good idea. It's a lovingly raised eyebrow in your direction, Chip. And we have video on this Skype call, so you can see me looking at you sideways. Yeah, I can see that. Moving right along. uh, So (laughs) we recorded last week's uh, monolithic 10-hour episode on Sunday, and then we released on Tuesday just as a long-awaited announcement had come that BritBox, the uh, streaming service from the BBC and ITV, had finally added classic Doctor Who to its offerings. Uh, You can get just about every possible episode that you want, as long as it's not a Dalek episode not written by Terry Nation. But it's all there. It's all there. I, uh, I have signed up. I happily watched An Unearthly Child again, and 
good service. It's all there. Yeah, this is really incredible. I'd been wondering what they were going to do about this uh, ever since they took it down off Netflix and Hulu. I've spent the last year getting caught up on classic Doctor Who thanks to friends who had been sending me boxes of DVDs across the country so I could watch all of these stories and get up to a good place. I've only got one more left. Uh, I'm still holding on to that last episode of Doctor (laughs) Who that I have yet to watch. Simply Um, because you don't want to have it all finished up, right? You know what? I'm denying the fact that Pertwee ever regenerated and we've ever moved beyond the third Doctor. (laughs) Let me have my fantasy chip. This is going to be so great for new fans. Um, It's really hard to watch classic Doctor Who. And I'm not even talking about the old nuggets you hear all the time that younger fans can't handle the black and white or they can't handle bad special effects or slower stories or small 25 minute episodes that build into a five, six, 10 part story. It's simply hard to access the show. The DVDs are expensive. And if you're not lucky enough to live with someone who's bought the entire collection, you could spend hundreds of dollars. You could spend years trying to find and check out the DVDs from your local library if they even have that big of a selection. Uh, I think this is going to help bring a lot of new fans into Classic Who, and I'm very excited about it. Yeah, it's it's really it's really a great thing. I'm glad, you know, it would be better, in my opinion, if it were still on Netflix or one of the big, broader uh, mm-hmm. streaming networks. But BritBox is not a hugely expensive service. And they've got plenty of good stuff on there besides Doctor Who. So uh, we are no longer forced to rely on the kindness of strangers uh, physically delivering DVDs to our friends. Uh, No more human (laughs) Brit box. And finally, uh, this has been my favorite Twitter account of possibly the entire year, Swear Who. This spun off of uh, the popular Twitter account Swear Trek, where people were taking gifs of Star Trek and recaptioning them to be very vulgar, very crass, having quite a bit of swearing in them. And someone looked at that and naturally decided it was going to be an excellent fit for Doctor Who. Now, this isn't solely people taking uh, gifs of the 12th Doctor and then adding swearing caption a la Malcolm Tucker. This is the full collection, classic and new, all sorts of different scenes and actors being pulled into it. And it is absolutely wonderful, hilarious, best thing that I have seen all year. It makes me happy. So if you are of an age that you can enjoy swearing without a parent or guardian getting upset at you, definitely go check out Swear Who. Yep, that's at swear underscore who. If you find a Twitter account with an avatar that has the old style unit logo with a different four letter word around the edges of it, that's it. You found it. So in a moment, Alyssa and I will come back to have a hair raising discussion. Stick around. I'm, I'm surprised you let my human Brit box comment go. I held my tongue. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, we have a lot of pop culture for you here on The Incomparable Network this week. Jason Snell and a cast of thousands draft their favorite episodes from every Star Trek series. 35 episodes go into the Trek Hall of Fame on The Incomparable. A new adventure begins as D&D nerds play live for your amusement on Total Party Kill. And with the new series of Doctor Who underway will come the hottest of hot takes on The Incomparable's same-day Flashcast reviews, each week on the TV feed. All of this and more is at theincomparable.com. So, Alyssa, I kind of alluded to this last week uh, when we were roundtabling with Tom and Rachel about our hopes and fears and predictions for uh, the coming series. I'm not entirely sure which Peter Capaldi is going to show up. There certainly have been uh, some slight differences in the Peter Capaldi's that we have seen in season eight and season nine of Doctor Who. Yeah, and I wanted to sort of quiz you for a little bit about which one was your favorite, because I have the feeling that I'm kind of out of step with the rest of the universe. 
Well, I'm happy to be quizzed as long as we start with the first and most important difference between Series 8 and Series 9, Capaldi. You're, 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 you're going there, aren't you? The hair. Uh, the you floof, went there. The bouffant. Peter Capaldi's <laughs> hair in Series 8 and Series 9 is clearly the most important difference between the two 12th Doctors. Oh, goodness. You know, I really do appreciate the fact that so many people have fallen in love with those wavy silver locks now. But, okay, for me, it's kind of a symptom. You know, we got Peter Capaldi at the beginning of Series 8, and he was not a happy dude. He was a grumpy dude. He was sort of almost post-traumatic stress disorder. You're almost talking um, Eccleston angst here because he... Wasn't sure who he was. Wasn't sure who he he liked who he, he was. You know, who frowned me this face? And he had the severe hair to match. All of a sudden, he shows up at the beginning of Series 9, and he's riding a tank, and he's playing a guitar, and he's got the hair, and the hair is only kept going. Dude has changed a lot in the last couple of years. He absolutely has. Uh, and I think... It's really interesting to see that development in the Doctor's character. I think one of the things that sort of threw me off uh, early on was the transition between the 11th Doctor and the 12th Doctor. And I don't know why that jarred me more than previous Doctors did. Um, I think there certainly has been, you know, a significant difference between each of the Doctors before. Like, this isn't the only time that it's been kind of alarming, the difference between them. Um, I think the characters that they were going for in each Doctor was very sharply different. And that impacted season eight doctor in my opinion because you had uh matt smith who's very you know he's he's getting a little darker at the end of his run um but he's still this kind of uh light cheery amiable amiable yet generally amiable kind of guy um and that's not always true. The 11th Doctor's actions can sometimes be deeply disturbing, but he has this amiable charm on the surface. And season eight Doctor seems to attempt to make a sharp right turn from that, that he's deliberately trying to be angry and mean at times. Yeah, um, and that was not comfortable to watch. And mm -hmm. I think that I have read somewhere that uh, Stephen Moffat and company recalibrated a little bit following Series 8 after they saw just that, you know, if you want to give the Doctor a dangerous edge and you put Peter Capaldi in the role. Yeah. Boom. You know, steroids. Uh, it, it's an espresso-laden angst and um, irritation and rage kind of thing. I don't think it's just that, though, because I think it also comes down to the writing in Series 8 and how they are choosing to portray an unlikable doctor, because you can make a character unlikable, but making them deliberately mean can be a very tricky thing to do. And I think one of the things that really... We saw that with the sixth Doctor. Exactly. And I think one of the things that put me off about part of Series 8 Capaldi is that he was written to be almost negging Clara throughout those early episodes. You know, he's saying that she looks ugly, even though she's got a full face of makeup, saying that you're no longer a young woman when clearly she is young and at a level of beauty most of us cannot attain. And that's very off-putting to me, um, to be treating his young female companion like that. So that was some aspect of how they were trying to lean into a meaner doctor that I really did not appreciate. Yeah, same here. But on balance, I think I en enjoyed is not the word, but I think I understood and got the doctor a little bit better in Series 8 than in Series 9. And I think most of that is because there was a greater level of consistency. We saw a lot of, you know, third doctor and first doctor in him or early first doctor in him in series eight. Second series um, in series nine, I felt like he was almost steering too hard in the Tom Baker direction. Eccentricity, 
wackiness, sort of off-puttingness, keeping you unbalanced kind of thing. And that's, on the one hand, that's lighter and more fun to watch. But I'm one of these people who doesn't want my doctor to be too enigmatic. I want to kind of understand where the doctor is coming from. And in the modern series, Eccleston, I knew. Tennant, I knew. Smith, I knew. Capaldi, I thought I knew. And I thought I saw a character arc for him that was uh, sort of slowly developing. And then series nine, very different. That's so interesting that you say that because I generally tend to prefer Pertwee's doctor over Baker's doctor. And yet I actually tend to like series nine Capaldi over series eight Capaldi. And I don't really see how I can actually argue with any of your points. He is a little bit more enigmatic. He's a little bit more poetic. It feels weird to say, but I think that's the the best way to describe it. You know, he definitely leans more into that mysterious magical aspect of the doctor and he is a lot more lighthearted uh you know he opens up series nine by walking into a stadium playing a guitar on a tank and making horrible anachronistic puns the entire time it's a very different type of doctor than is the series eight doctor but In series eight, their big thing was that Capaldi was going to be 100% rebel time lord. I didn't actually really feel that he was 100% rebel time lord until we get to series nine. And we're really grappling with the doctor rebelling against even his own long held tenets about what it means to be a time lord of what it means to be the doctor and how he uh, wants to interpret him and follow his own sense of morality. Uh, mm. And I, I do like that he keeps me on my toes a little bit more. I do like that he's uh, a bit more unpredictable. I think that he's unlikable in a way that I appreciate that he's a little bit caustic, that he's a little bit out of the loop on what you're supposed to say is a social nicety. One of the things I really liked was the uh, note cards that Clara had um, for the doctor um, in Under the Lake and Before the Flood. It actually Mm. reminded me a lot of um, what my mom did with my dad, that he sometimes needed the cues for social niceties of this is what you are supposed to say in this situation, dear, because you do not understand what it is that people expect out of you in this situation. (laughs) I really liked that sort of unlikableness about the doctor. And it made for it, it made for a much more pleasant way to get across the fact that the doctor isn't quite up on social niceties than to have him simply blithely say, this is Clara. She's my carer. She cares so I don't have to. Yeah, that one sort of rubbed me a little bit the wrong way um, because it's not simply saying that the doctor doesn't understand social niceties because he wants to be blunt and upfront about what's going to happen to people. It's putting the emotional labor on the female companion and saying, you're responsible for making sure everyone here is uh, up to date and comfortable. And, you know, you're responsible for how they feel about this completely unexpected, awful situation, because I just can't be bothered to do it. Mm. That to me was the difference between them. And that's one of the reasons I liked series nine over series eight Capaldi. Well, speaking of the companion, you know, the big difference in series 10, of course, is that he's not going to have Clara to lean on or to lean into anymore. Um, And his relationship with Clara was very different in series eight and series nine. It's like uh, after as a result of uh, last Christmas, they sort of got a new lease on life and they became huggers again after they had stopped being huggers post-regeneration. But Uh, Clara and his relationship with her, big deal. Yeah. Really big deal. 
Very much so. I think Clara has a huge role in shaping the series eight and series nine uh, doctors. Series eight, you really see sort of a reevaluation of her relationship with the doctor, that it's no longer just a fun jaunt every Wednesday when she wants to go have an adventure. She's really evaluating what it is that they're doing when they're off having these adventures. She's reevaluating how much she can trust the doctor, not just simply to tell her the truth, but to to look out for her and protect her and care for her needs uh, and expectations. And Clara is becoming more doctorish as a result. She's willing to tell half-truths or outright lies. She's becoming a little manipulative in her own way. And she's really pushing situations further than maybe the other people around her are comfortable uh, doing. And we really see that in the series eight finale, how much she's pushing the doctor and demanding things of the doctor and pushing situations really into a level that maybe neither of them is entirely comfortable with. Series nine, they're both sort of equal partners there for a little while, but you finally see the culmination of the what people have dubbed the Clara Who arc, that Clara really becomes a character equal to and akin to the Doctor, that she dies but cheats it, that she's got her own TARDIS, her own companion, her own adventures. Um, and I don't know how you feel about the sort of discussion about Clara Who. To me, it feels like a new iteration of an old discussion of how important the companion stories have been in Doctor Who since Russell T. Davies rebooted the show. You know, seems to me this is a lot of it is similar to the discussions about whether Russell T. Davies was making Doctor Who too domestic by focusing a lot on the companions and the families and their stories. Um, I think the companions just generally have a larger role in Doctor Who in the new series um, than they've had in the classic series. To me, I think Clara and the whole Clara Who sort of arc actually strengthens the character of the Doctor because we are getting an interesting uh, look at what happens when the Doctor faces someone who's very similar to him and opposing in a way to him that you have a character who wants to push the boundaries and wants to break the rules and will dissimilate and lie and manipulate similar to the way that he does. And he's very uncomfortable with it. And it's kind of interesting to see how he copes with that, um, particularly in the series nine finale, where uh, he sort of wants to cope with it by erasing everything that makes Clara who she is and dropping her back into what her life was pre him, because he's uncomfortable with the way that um, her life puts her in danger similar to the way he puts his own life in danger you know that reminds me of of all things the uh most recent trailer that came out for spider-man homecoming when tony stark confronts peter parker about peter parker having done something reckless and stupid um and demands that peter give him back his uh brand new custom designed uh spider suit and Peter Parker says, I wanted to be more like you. And Tony Stark shoots back, I want you to be better than me. And that's sort of where I sort of see, you know, the Series 9 Doctor sort of looking on Clara with kind of horror. Because there is that line, you know, that she's much more fragile than he is. You know, she is doing things that he would never ask her to do because he could survive it. She couldn't. Mm -hmm. But I think it comes down to also the continuing exploration of is the doctor going to let people determine their own lives? You know, he's a creature that has immense power over other people simply by the ability to travel backwards and forwards in time and learn so much about their lives and be able to go back and rewrite it. You know, it's very similar to the whole Time Lord Victorious arc that Russell T. Davies had at the end of his run of Doctor Who. Personally, I define that arc as beginning with the doctor erasing Donna's memories and really going forward up until the point that David Tennant regenerates that he the 10th doctor really is 
going too far in manipulating people's lives because he feels uncomfortable with the choices that they have made on their adventures with him. And series nine is really about the doctor's discomfort with his friends making decisions during their adventures with him that he's uncomfortable with. You know, you have Kate and Unit and Osgood sort of trapped in this perpetual loop of fighting with the Zygons, coming to a resolution, and the doctor erasing their memories again. You have the subplot with a shielder slash me of she's been given an extended pretty much eternal life by the doctor and she's living it in a way that he's not particularly comfortable with and you have clara who's becoming very doctorish and yeah it puts her in danger but it's something that she's sort of aware of and comfortable with and he's very uncomfortable with that so i think that whole arc of Clara who of building up a character at a similar level to the doctor um, is a very interesting exploration of how the doctor copes with people living their lives in ways that he doesn't approve of. You know, rewatching An Unearthly Child on BritBox, the thing that struck me uh, so much, knowing that we were going to be having this conversation, was what an ensemble piece that first uh, 30 minutes of Doctor Who really is. Mm-hmm. The doctor is not the central figure of the story. It's the heavy lifting is shared um, by all four main characters, Ian and Barbara and Susan. It's all their stories. He's the doctor is the mystery of the story, not so much the hero of the story. So series nine Capaldi, just trying to sort of bring this back uh, full circle. He strikes me as more mysterious. Um, and I prefer my doctors to be less mysterious and possibly more heroic than mysterious, but that doesn't have to be at the expense of their companions. I think Doctor Who is a stronger show when everybody has agency. When the companion characters have agency and have a story arc of their own, that gives the doctor more to deal with as a character and as a it gives the writers something more to do with the Doctor rather than him just be this enigmatic hero. Yeah, I think that's definitely uh, a perspective I mostly share. I think I tend to prefer Series 9 because I don't mind my characters being a little bit more on the mysterious side. And it's a type of unlikable Doctor that I tend to appreciate more, that it strikes the right balance between a character who is a little unsettling and a little unlikable and a little bit rude, but without leaning into mean for the sake of it. Uh, so that's that's where I fall. Also, he's got better hair in Series 9. And that truly brought things full circle. <laughs> Next week on This Week in Time Travel... Why would we talk about anything else? We're finally getting a new episode of Doctor Who, and we will talk pretty much exclusively about it and any other news that may have broken upon us. So, The Pilot by Stephen Moffat, next week on This Week in Time Travel. Up next, we have an incredible interview with Kim and Sage of Head Over Feels. If you've ever been to a convention with these two incredible ladies it's pretty obvious they're usually the ones there in the best outfits the best makeup and with the most incredible girl gang around them they've worked over the past couple of years to build a really inclusive fan space that celebrates the women and gives them the freedom to participate in fandom in any way they want to at gallifrey one Chip caught up with them to talk about Doctor Who fandom and building inclusive spaces. I was having a lobby conversation. You all were the subject of the conversation. We were talking about fan groups and influencers on fandom. And my friend who is not a... He's not. A, he is a head person. He's not a feels person. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, said uh, that he thought head over feels has had a remarkable impact on Doctor Who fandom um, very quickly in the last few years, very approvingly. So, may I add? Oh. 
That's, I know, that's so nice to hear. Um, and I have a funny feeling that you all actually intended to have an impact. What, what do you try to do in, um, when you talk about pop culture? I don't know if we ever thought that we were going to have an impact in a, a big way, and that's still like... I, I believe you, but it's a little mind-boggling. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, I think that we, you know, we really just kind of wanted to participate and be at the party and be at the table. And we've been um, really excited to be welcomed in this way. And uh, we think it was just like us being us is the thing. It's like we didn't like sit down to be like, this is our brand. This is our brand. I mean, obviously <laughs> we've had conversations about that since then, but... Uh, you know, we both just very, we like, we're very passionate and we have a lot of emotional reactions to things. And I, I mean, that was instantly our voice was just a voice of, of, of emotion and real like fangirl. Because, speak. because the stereotype for the longest time of the Doctor Who fan has been not much for feels, not very welcoming for the new fans who came along with the new series very male and treating Doctor Who as almost an intellectual exercise. If you had a motto, would it be F that? (laughs) (laughs) Kind of. Um, I guess we, maybe our our motto is that there's, that you can be both of those things at the same time. Yeah, that's in our about section. Basically, Mm -hmm. that you can look at something critically and at the same time be really jazzed to be watching a new episode of Doctor Who after a year of not having any Doctor Who. You know, that you don't have to kind of approach things prepared to be disappointed or prepared to be and you can still think the doctor is cute right (laughs) and then talk about the show intellectually and I think that a lot of time is is the the weird area that some people haven't maybe necessarily understood or that that voice hasn't been there for that and I I do think that that maybe is a is a little niche that we filled And I'm hearing that kind of more and more, like the panel I was on today, you know, when we were talking about the transition and there was a certain point where um, Graham Burke, who was moderating, asked everybody, like, let's all talk about how we feel about Peter Capaldi leaving, (laughs) you know, not not kind of structurally what that means for the show, but let's all just take a beat to kind of mourn him a little bit and I thought that was really fun and yeah. great and then well and then uh what was his uh, Paul Booth was like I have a lot of feels yeah <laughs> it, was like, it was great because Sage just leaned into the mic and was like same so that's you know we we kind of got started just by we have these conversations by ourselves over drinks over food over you know commutes and mm-hmm. uh and we just really wanted to I can't even remember how the idea for the blog right. came about. Right. And uh, I think it was just, we were both kind of in, not dead-end jobs, but not really creatively fulfilling jobs. And um, I have obviously met a lot of people, I think we all have, who have carved out their own niche, whether that's in podcasting or blogging or um, whatever that is. And uh, and we were just kind of like, okay, well, let's give it a shot. So with no real kind of designs or goals or it was around the time for me that I had really like rediscovered fandom as an adult and uh learned to embrace it and learned to start saying you know screw anyone that thinks that I'm weird for like getting real emotional about a television show it was right around uh I was really into the community fandom and that I mean and it was just like you found your tribe and so it was it was a time for me I really feel like of learning to embrace that part of myself and to celebrate. And it just like coincided with Sage and I like becoming instant best friends after floating in the same social circle for like five years. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) I don't hear a lot. Well, literally you wouldn't hear a lot about the sort of the scourge of the tenant fangirl, which Mm -hmm. was a big thing, um, which was a big thing in the late two thousands. Um, and I haven't I haven't heard a lot of the same an, of any analogs to that recently. And you know, you all are a small part of that, but you are a part of that of making making Doctor Who fandom broader 
I think. Why Doctor Who? Why what what gets what what got you into it, and why is it such a big part of? It's not all of Head of Overfields, but I think it was the yeah. timing of us launch. We launched the site in 2012, and that was right when we both started watching Doctor Who. Pretty much, we had started watching in like 2011. Yeah, and we had pretty much marathoned it. Um, yeah in a parallel yeah manner. you know so. that, you know asylum of the daleks was our first live episode ever and we had just launched because i remember because you were in london and i recapped the angels take manhattan mm-hmm. uh that and i think and maybe i had done something for power of three too i can't remember but i do very much remember i feel like the first real doctor who recap we wrote was Angels Take Manhattan and, like, what a one to start with. Because <laughs> it was very emotional and very... Yeah, so it was kind of a part of our our friendship origin story was yeah. kind of falling into this and at the same time. Um, and also, I think we both discovered a lot of things that we love about series that we love already. Like, you know, there's a lot of the... the um, in terms of community community doesn't always exist in the same kind of universe you know sometimes they totally change up where they're at even though they're they're mm-hmm. always at the school and i think that's that's an element of it and a little bit of the weirdness and the um the like outsiders gathering like gathering together kind of narrative and then there's the you know then there's the hero arc the hero journey that we were talking about today in that awesome panel that we were at and uh and um having these uh, and we, we've always been like sci-fi people too. We're huge X-Files fans. That's and how we both like, discovered fandom. Lord of the Rings. And, and, you know, fa- yeah. fantasy and, and science fiction. And, and it was this... There, there was also just so much to it, you know, when you're, you, when you discover something and you're, and you're like, oh my God, like there's not just three, four episode seasons. Like this could, this is... This is this a is lifetime you can really <laughs> turn it into. Um, and, and it also, I think that the deeper that we've gone into that in terms of how we cover it on the site, of course, has to do with once we started going to conventions and loving them and loving the people who we met. And, and that, that just gets you farther and farther down the rabbit hole. Thank goodness. You have practically made convention going a, a sport. <laughs> That's what it was. It, Graham and Deb uh, coined it, I think, on our maybe our first galley that they were like how do we feel that it's like conventions are a contact sport for them and i mean i don't know i i just like soaking up all the programming mm-hmm. i mean i i that's what we come here for and that's what we paid the money to be here to do so why not do all you know and we've gotten a little more relaxed as the years have gone on as far as you know that kind of balance mm-hmm. but um, how has Doctor Who, how welcoming has Doctor Who fandom felt for you? Um, just, um, I have to, I have to, I have to imagine that it's kind of a mixed bag sometimes. Very much so. It's a bit of a mixed bag. Um, I think that, you know, everybody has been in, in panels or in lobby con conversations where there's a dissenting opinion and sometimes that dissenting opinion can be expressed in a <laughs> not very healthy way. Um, and there's also kind of stuff you hear secondhand, like this person such and such doesn't really like what you're doing and you just have to say, well, that's that's, okay. <laughs> you know, that's, you and know. they just kind of keep doing what you're doing. But like, we really have found a lot of people who have, uh, been very welcoming and, and, and have boosted the signal of our work and championed our staff and, um, and have, a, and have invited us to be on panels with them and, um, invited us to do podcasts, which is wonderful. And, uh, yeah, so it's definitely a mixed bag, but it's, you just kind of have to you phase to, that you, you can't to, listen to that other you have to separate yourself out from it otherwise you're gonna make yourself crazy and also we don't want to ever change who we are because of anything that we may hear through the grapevine right. of people you know commenting on the glitter makeup and the mini skirts and the giant you know mason jars of wine <laughs> at the cons you know and we're just being us and and Sage said that at Galley last year at one point to me and we were having a talk about something and she's like, you know, we're sometimes not aware even if there is a dissenting opinion because we're just having fun. And so. also I think that if, if, if anybody, if people are paying close enough attention to us to be critical, they can see that 
there are plenty of people who come to these conventions just to socialize. And I totally get that because you get to see people who you don't get to see all year. Maybe this is the only time that you see them and maybe they've missed the last three cons. And of course you want to come here to socialize and do lobby con and hang out. And, but we're, we don't just do that. We are in panels all day long and we are trying to participate and we are interested in talking to creators. And, um, so I think just the, also, in practice, we're not we as vapid as I think bit, some people we think feel we feel like are. a bit of a responsibility that people who read our websites who aren't here. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like that that's been a very important part of our con coverage in building the sites, not just at Dr. Who cons, but at San Diego comic-con and mm-hmm. New York comic-con and all the other, you know, LA Who, Chicago Tardis, you know, we want to give like the view from the ground floor for the people that read our site. And also like that gets people interested in wanting to come is like, this is experiencing it through our eyes, but we're trying to get the big picture of the whole con, you know, and do the panels, but also dance until 4 a.m. with, you know, everybody at the dance party. I just think that's, that's important. How do you how do you feel about Doctor Who fandom compared to the other fandoms that you cover on Head Over Feels or are involved in? What makes Doctor Who sort of distinctive for you? I think Doctor Who is the, is kind of the richest fandom mm-hmm. with the widest experience in the fan base. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how I found it, and certainly among the most creative fans. Well, there's so much to mine from for it, and you know everyone has different perspectives. And, I mean, it was really interesting for us because the site took off a lot uh, when we covered Sleepy Hollow, and that was kind of like getting in on the ground floor of a fandom. And so a lot of people came to us because people weren't writing about Sleepy Hollow at the time, and we started writing about it on, like, episode five. You know, so that was kind of like us blindly forging our way through a fledgling fandom and there's so much like already cemented in the Doctor Who fandom you know so it's totally it's totally different yeah you just kind of like it's like it's like your lane it's like people are running a marathon and you're kind of joining it part way through and you're like uh just wait for a spot okay now I'll jump in you know and kind of going with the flow now if I recall correctly Sleepy Hollow is one of those properties that is in the you had me and you lost me category yeah what happened there? Oh, boy. <laughs> they fridged their female lead. They fridged their female lead, uh, which was a Who was a problem. woman of color who was very important to a very large audience. And it was very, it was very eye-opening for us to when it happened, because those women saw it coming. And it was, you know, and we had been kind of, you know, so it was a very humbling, I think, experience for us when it Yeah, happened. it was a lot of the fans of that show who who were women of color, who are huge sci-fi fans and, and really identified with this character, had sort of seen early on, like, uh, she's being marginalized. And we were like, is she? Is she? Are you sure? You know? And uh, not to question their experience, but mm-hmm. like we, we just couldn't see it as clearly as they could. Yeah. And then when it happened, looking back, it was like, ah, see, yes, this is why these voices are important and this is why, you know, they should, should never be discounted and we all should just shut up and listen. Yeah. It was a, it was a big learning experience for us for sure. And, you know, I mean, it really made me take a step back and look at some of the stuff I had previously said about the show and was like, Oh, Kim. Oh no, past Kim. But you know, it's sort of an an object lesson in intersectionality. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And then, you know, in writing about what had happened, I had written about what, had happened and and in that post was kind of like hey we we this was our experience of this and we we see how we were blinded by our privilege to what was going on and fortunately you know people who read it were really supportive great and supportive yeah. and and yeah and uh we had a great discussion in the comments all different i mean it makes me sad it's very sad it's very sad and it was very shocking <laughs> and that's another thing about doctor who fandom that's great is that yeah of course there are people who are very resistant to change, which is weird because Doctor Who is change. <laughs> but there are also these great pockets of, of fans who are uh, super progressive and, and really excited about switching up the makeup of the show mm-hmm. um, and the makeup of the of behind the scenes. So, well, let's uh, let's close our conversation with the with with what you think the state of Doctor Who is right now. We're finally about to get some new episodes after a really awful drought. We did have uh, we we did have the Christmas special, which 
um, succeeded in some ways and raised uh, raised other hackles. But where do you think? How do you think Doctor Who? If if you wanted to sort of gauge whether it needed to be on life support or it was healthy as a as a creative property, where how do you feel like Doctor Who is doing these days? I've been more excited about Doctor Who in the past two years. I mean, Peter Capaldi to me was like they took the electric paddles and put it on the chest and was like brown, and all of a sudden, you know, not that I was I wasn't falling out of love with it, but you know, it was kind of like there were some episodes toward the end of Matt Smith's run that I was like, oh, don't you, it's getting a little tired. What's happening? And Peter, to me, like from the moment, like the opening moment of Deep Breath, I was, I was in, and like series eight to me is, it's one of my favorites, if not my favorite, season. And so, and it progressed with series nine, and and now we're going into you know a new companion, and we, and I'm excited. I think, I think, I, and I hope we go out. Stephen goes out with a bang. I think he has proved that he can do it. It's just, will he? <laughs> I think, I, I think, yeah, I think it's the combination for me of Capaldi's doctor and Stephen Moffat's writing because I feel like he gets that doctor in a way that he didn't get Matt Smith, even though he created <laughs> the 11th doctor. I don't know. I, I've just, I've, I've really loved um, their, that sort of symbiotic relationship. And, uh, you know, it's at a crossroads, but like Doctor Who is always at a crossroads. I love that every, uh, you know, every couple of years, it's like, okay, what's gonna happen? Are we gonna, are we gonna soar? Are we gonna stumble a little bit? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's part of, uh, it's part of being a fan of the show. Is is that little bit of anxious excitement? Well, what was it you said this afternoon about the show has the potential to break our hearts every day, and that's why we still watch? Oh, did I? I don't think I, I said think it that you long. said it. <laughs> You said it pretty poetically because I was like, because I tweeted it and I was like, that's my wife. Um, it's just nice to be a little scared sometimes. Yeah. You know, it's good to be a little scared of what, of what's you know, coming and in the I'm future. excited. I mean, there was talk in the Chibnall panel today of some people who've had a little bit of experience with the new series that it, the relationship with Bill and uh, 12 is kind of going a little back to the ace and, uh, Sylvester McCoy dynamic and like that's exciting that's to really me exciting, yeah. and yeah it's it you know as much as I loved the tortured tangled relationship of the doctor and Clara because I would I would die for that relationship but uh it will be as Sage said exciting for a little hopefully bit of levity <laughs> that wraps up our second episode of this week in time travel chip where can the good people find us they can find us at thisweekintimetravel.com. We're also on Twitter at drwhothisweek, no punctuation. I live on Twitter at Two Minute Time Lord, and Alyssa lives on Twitter and Tumblr at Whovian Feminism. No punctuation. Punctuation is bad. Hey, we're on Facebook, too. Jason Snell runs the network and graciously invited us. Our theme music is by Christopher Brain, and our podcast logo was designed by David J. Lore. We will see you next week on This Week in Time Travel. Thanks, Alyssa. Thanks, Chip. Bye-bye.